Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this Word that You have given. We thank You for the opportunity we have to worship You. We pray now, Lord, as we come to Your Word and to consider the Word that You give, particularly to us as husbands, of how we are to care for our wives and love our wives, that, that You would help us to, um, to see more, not just of what we are supposed to do, but to see more of what Christ Himself has already done and is doing and will do in and through us. Lord, I pray that You would help me in my weakness that your strength would be made manifest. I pray that you would give me uh, the ability to speak in a way that is clear, in a way that is compelling, and in a way that is Christ-centered. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're looking this morning at the last part of Ephesians chapter 5. We're actually in our, our third sermon on Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. A few weeks ago, we, we looked at what marriage is for and looked at this passage as a whole. Last week, Pastor Rick walked us through verses 22 to 24, addressing wives. And today, we want to look at verses 25 to 33 and look at what husbands are called to do. And it raises the question, especially for those of us who, who are husbands, um, what are you as husbands supposed to do What's your job description? What are husbands for? I think if you were to ask uh, many people, that's maybe a bit of a strange question. It's not one that we think about, and maybe your mind goes to the things that you do in your home. You know, well, I'm I'm the husband. I'm the one that takes out the trash. I'm the one that mows the lawn. I'm the one that does the taxes and fixes the car and goes to work to provide for my family. And these are the kinds of things that we as husbands do. Uh, those are those are not bad answers. Oftentimes, that's part of what we as husbands are called to do, but it doesn't really get to the heart of it, does it? And what Paul does in, in our passage today is bring us right to the heart of that question. What are husbands supposed to do? And he gives us a wonderful answer that we want to look at um, today. And uh, as I thought about this, I thought uh, I really couldn't improve on the outline that we had last week. Uh, Pastor Rick asked really three questions. What are wives commanded to do? Why are they given this command, and how do they obey that command? And I thought, well, that's a great way to, to deal with this, only we'll just pop husbands in instead of wives. What are, what are husbands commanded to do? Why are husbands given this command? And how can we as husbands obey this command? So how does Paul answer this question of what we as husbands are supposed to do? What are we commanded in this passage? Well, I think he already begins to, to point us toward an answer when he speaks to the wives. Let me just read verses 22 to 24, and as I do it, imagine that you are sitting there in Ephesus the very first time this letter is being read, and you're listening to Paul speak to the wives. Now imagine, if you're a husband, what you think he's about to say to you. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now let's just pause there. Uh, We see that the basic command Paul gives to the wives is to submit. If you want to know more of what that means, you can listen to the sermon from last week. But from that you can see, okay, well, it seems like what Paul is going to say is that if if wives are called to submit to their husbands, if wives are called to to follow their husbands, then the husband's call is to lead, right? He's he's called to, to, to lead in a way that they can submit to, to lead in a way that they can follow. 
So we would expect verse 25 to say, Husbands, lead your wives as Christ leads the church. But instead we read these words. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, what, what is Paul doing here? Is he, is, he, is he changing topics? Is he kind of jumping off track? I, I don't think so. I think what Paul is actually doing is talking about leadership. But biblically speaking, leadership and love are not two different things. Leadership is always love applied to a certain set of responsibilities or circumstances. And that's true not just for husbands with wives, but for all of our positions of leadership. If you're an officer in the church, leadership is love applied. If you're a parent with children, leadership is love applied. In, in, in work, in school, whatever situation you may be in a position of authority, what you are called to do as a leader is to apply love to those who are under your authority. And so this discussion of love is a discussion of leadership. Paul says the basic command that we as husbands are given is this, lead in love. That's the title of our sermon, Leading in Love. We want to explore what that means today. Love is uh, one of those words that we, we think we know exactly what it means, right? We, we come across it very often. If you listen to a song on the radio, what are they probably singing about? Love. Uh, you watch uh, a movie or read a book, probably there's some character somewhere in there who falls in love, right? Love is part and parcel of our everyday life. It's a word we use very often. It's something that we all talk about. Uh, and yet, when we come to the Bible, what we find is that what we think of as love and how, how we think of love is actually very different than the way the Bible speaks about love. So when we read this command, husbands, love your wives, we need to make sure that we are bringing with that a biblical definition of love. And, and the Bible has a lot to say about love. If someone were to ask you, you know, what, explain to me what the Bible means when it talks about love, where would you probably go? What's the first passage that comes to mind? Well, probably 1 Corinthians 13 leaps to mind, right? If, you're, if you've been to any Christian wedding, what are the two passages they always read? Well, they read Ephesians 5 that we're looking at today, and they read 1 Corinthians 13. And we read there this, this wonderful description of love that Paul gives. We won't, we won't take the time to turn there, but you know, love is patient, love is kind, it, it, it keeps no record of wrongs, um, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it doesn't insist on its own way. Love is all of these things. But oftentimes, when the Bible talks about love, it doesn't just offer us a description of love, it actually offers us a depiction of love. If you go to the Bible and say, show me what love is, it's going to point you back to God. And not just to God, it's going to point you to Christ. And not just to Christ, it's going to point you to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's what we see in our passage even here. Husbands, love your wives. What does that look like? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Apostle John writes a lot about love, both in his gospel and in his letters. We can think of probably the most famous and well-known verse in the Bible, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You want to know what love is, you look at God, you look at his Son, you see that sacrifice, that giving of himself. I think a wonderful um, answer to what love is is found not in John 3.16 only, but also in 1 John 3.16. I invite you to turn there uh, if you're able. This is, will be towards the end of the Bible, back towards the book of Revelation. And in 1 John, uh, 
John is writing a lot about love, and he answers the question, how do we know what love is? How do we know what love is? And he says this in 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, listen to this. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now this is just a sampling of what the Bible says about love. But let's step back from that and say, how does this depiction and description of love compare to how we often think of love? Well, you'll notice that um, the biblical picture of love is linked to action. Specifically, actions of sacrifice, actions of service. And it's not defined as being primarily a human emotion, but as something that is rooted in and seen ultimately in the character of God himself. So much so that John is able to say, God is love. I think if we were to try to summarize the difference between how we often think of love and how the Bible portrays love, it would be that, that we think of love primarily in terms of feeling. The Bible thinks of love primarily in terms of faithfulness. I was reading an article by Christopher Ashe, a British pastor who's written a book on marriage, and he was talking about how this definition of love as a feeling, as an emotion, a passion, affection, has really crept into the church in many, many ways. And he was talking about uh, uh, an ad he saw once for a Christian marriage conference. And this is what the ad said. It said, relationships begin when you fall in love, and relationships end when you no longer feel in love. So love is central, but it is rarely fully understood. This course will show you how you can each give and receive the love you need. It will show you how to keep romance permanently alive. Ash says, a more Christian advertisement might read, marriage begins when you publicly promise lifelong faithfulness. Marriage ends when one of you dies. Faithfulness is central, but is rarely understood. This course will show you what faithfulness means and how to be faithful through good times and bad, no matter how you feel. It will show you how to keep faithfulness alive. Ash says that would be a good deal less in tune with the age in which we live, but a great deal more in tune with the Bible. So when we read this command, husbands, love your wives, lead in love, we're not talking here primarily about a feeling, an emotion, or passion. Although those are all things that have a place in good Christian marriage, but that passion, that emotion, does not equal love. Love should be defined here, maybe, maybe as we read about it in the Old Testament. God loves His people with a steadfast love, a covenant love, a faithful love. And that's what husbands are called to do, to be faithful to their wives. That's the basic command. So when Paul addresses the question, what are husbands supposed to do? He says, lead in love. Now why does he give us this command? Well, we see in verse 25 that this command is given to love primarily as a response to something. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul's echoing what he said already in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what is Paul saying? Husbands, why do we love our wives? Why are we called to do this? Well, to quote Paul from elsewhere, we love because he first loved us. Now that might sound like a pretty simple truth, but it's actually incredibly important. Husbands, think about how marriage often goes. Um, oftentimes you get married and, and, and love is like a fire that you've built. You put some logs together, you lit the flame, and your love is burning bright. And then you go on in years and circumstances change and kids come and things get hard and, and you're looking for your wife to kind of be adding fuel to the fire of your love, to keep that love burning strong and hot. But sometimes, as parents, as husbands and wives, we get distracted, don't we? We're so busy trying to keep up with the things we need to do that we don't take care of our spouse in the way that we should. And so sometimes you're looking for your wife to add some fuel to the fire and it's just not coming. And that flame gets smaller and cooler and sometimes it goes out altogether. And even Christians can find themselves saying, this is just not working. We're not in love anymore. And either they part ways or sometimes they stay married, they keep their vows, and yet inside there's a deadness because that fire has not been built. So what's the solution to that? Well, part of the answer, of course, is that we as spouses need to be aware of that dynamic. We need to add fuel to the fire whenever and however we can. And, and I would encourage you, I I'm, have very little life experience. Um, I recognize that. But... Um, Talking with pastors who have done counseling, something I've heard a lot again and again and again is people come for counseling when they're on the edge of divorce. And they'll sit in front of their pastor and say, unless you can talk us out of it, we're going to get divorced. Now, it's not impossible for a marriage to be saved at that point. God has often brought marriages back from the brink, but it makes it very hard. So let me encourage you, and maybe especially those who are in, in my shoes, where you're newly married, uh, that, that flame is still there. When you find these challenges coming up, when you feel that coldness coming, don't wait years and decades to address it. Talk to your spouse right away and be willing to come and talk to the elders, talk to a pastor, talk to a, an older Christian couple. Seek out help. There's a stigma against asking for help, but that's what we as the body are here for. So don't measure it in months. If you've, in years, if you've gone months with a kind of coldness or hardness or animosity there, bring that out into the open and address that. That's, that's part of the answer. But that's not the whole answer. And in fact, that's not even the main answer. What Paul tells us is that our love for our wife is not really a response to her love. And that's the problem when we're, we're looking for our wife to add fuel to our fire. He says, our love for our wife is really a response to Christ's love for us. So even if your wife is, is not recognizing or reciprocating the ways that you're serving or, or loving her, even if you're trying to be faithful and loving and gentle and understanding and kind, and yet it just seems like you're dealing with a brick wall or there's nagging or, or criticism that's there and you're struggling uh, in your marriage, husbands, um, Yes, work with your wife, but don't, don't put the weight on her. Don't wait for her to change. The way that we can have fuel on our fire to love our wives, to love those around us, is to see the way that Christ has loved us. That's what 
Paul calls us to here, to be imitators of God, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We love and lead in love as a response to Christ's love, first and foremost. But here's a beautiful thing, and this is another reason why I think husbands are given this command to lead in love. Not only are we called to to respond to Christ's love for us, but as we respond to Christ's love for us, we also reflect that love to others, to those around us. And we see this especially in verses 26 through 30. Paul begins to describe why Christ has loved us the way that he has, and therefore also why we as husbands are called to love our wives as we are supposed to do. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But why did Christ do that? Why did Christ give himself up for the church? Well, he answers the question in verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's just pause there a moment. Christ calls us to lead in love, to reflect back the love that Christ has shown to us so that our wives might be made more holy. Now that's not something that um, comes out very strongly in a lot of the marriage literature, even Christian marriage literature. Um, A couple of semesters ago I had the chance to take a class with um, Joel Beakey, the president of the seminary I go to, and it was a class on the Puritans. And a lot of people assume that the Puritans have a very low, kind of dim view of love and romance. And uh, the irony there is that it was actually the Puritans who were the first uh, people in, in, in history to really bring romance into marriage and emphasize that aspect of loving your wife and cultivating that love and romance. If you want to know more about that, you can ask me later. But in that class, Dr. Beakey was talking to us about the Puritan attitude to marriage. And he said, if you were to ask kind of the, the representative Puritan, why did you marry your wife? He said he, he wouldn't point to her looks or her personality or her wealth or her sense of humor or any of those things. He would say, the basic reason why I married my wife is to help her become more holy. It's so that on the last day when she stands before Christ, she would be a better Christian because she was married to me. Husbands, how many of us could say that? Maybe we have helped our wives to become more holy because we're kind of a thorn in their flesh and they're sanctified, but I don't think that's only what we're talking about. We should be actively seeking to do what Christ does here, sanctifying her, washing her in the water of the Word so that, so that our wives may be presented to Christ in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. Now, don't misunderstand me, because this is an area where we as husbands can get off too. Um, Oftentimes, we're comfortable with the idea of thinking, yeah, I need to kind of fix my wife. I can can give you a list of all of her sins and struggles, and I want to help her get better. Uh, I don't think that's what Christ is calling us to. He's not calling us to be the Holy Spirit or to be the Savior for our wives. Uh, This is not a, 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 a public improvement project, right? This is not about fixing our wives, but it is about encouraging our wives and leading our wives to become more holy, to die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness. 
And that attitude of, of holiness as a prime motivator in marriage is something that is front and center when Paul comes to talk about marriage and yet often way in the background when we think about marriage. Paul gives another reason, though, uh, beginning in verse 28. He says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, this is a picture that should be familiar to all of us, right? Paul has used this already in the book of Ephesians. He uses it in 1 Corinthians to talk about Christ and the church. And he says, Christ is the head and we are the body. Therefore, we're bound together, right? Um, it's like if, if I were to finish the sermon and one of you came up and punched me in the stomach and I were to say, why did you, why did you hit me? You couldn't say, well, I didn't hit you. I, I, just, I just hit your stomach. Experientially, for me, there's no difference at that point in time. And Paul says that's actually how it is with Christ and the church and actually how it is with the husband and his wife. That's why when Saul was persecuting Christians, Christ could appear to him and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul couldn't say, well, I, I never attacked you. I never even met you. I'm just, I'm just after these Christians. To attack Christians is to attack Christ. Uh, we're bound together. We, we share one body. The two become one. And so Paul introduces us to this way of thinking to help us get our minds around one of the great paradoxes of Christian marriage, and that is this. Uh, the world says, if you want to pursue happiness, if you want to pursue health, if you want to pursue success, you have to get it for yourself. Right? You can't look for others to give it to you. You can't spend all your energy on other people. You have to pursue your own success. And the Bible says the exact opposite. The best way to promote your own holiness, your own happiness, your own health, is to look out for the holiness, the happiness, and the health of others, and specifically that of your wife. Paul says when you care for your spouse, you're caring for yourself. And brothers, there's a corollary there. If you're not caring for your spouse... You're actually harming yourself as well. And so the beautiful thing here in marriage is that while our love is not fueled by the love or affection of our wife, it's fueled by uh, our response to Christ's love for us, we reflect Christ's love, and that brings greater holiness, greater happiness, greater health to our marriage, to our wives, and to ourselves. This is why we are given this command to lead in love, because it is a way that Christ brings our wives closer to Christ and brings us closer to Christ as well. Marriage, as you see, is not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about your spouse. It's about Christ and what He is doing in and through the church. Our picture of marriage for all of our talk of love is often way too small. Paul blows it up to cosmic proportions here. And this should change the way that we as husbands lead in love. So if that's the basic command to lead in love, and if we're given this command to respond to Christ's love, to reflect Christ's love, how, husbands, can we do this? This is all well and good, what we've said so far. Um, a lot of it's things that I'm sure you've heard before, maybe even things you've said before, but how do we do it? What does this look like? Well, I think Paul points us toward an answer in the last three verses of our chapter. Look at verse 31. 
33, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quotation from the book of Genesis. Paul goes on to say, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, how does this point us towards ways we can obey this command to lead in love? Well, I think the first way is found in this quotation from Genesis. Paul takes his readers all the way back to the beginning. The first man, the first woman, the first marriage. And he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Why? Why does he leave his father and mother? To hold fast to his wife. Because the two shall become one flesh. I think we can lead in love by holding fast to our wife, first and foremost. And this can happen in many, many ways. Paul is basing this, right, on this reality that the two have become one flesh. So husbands, if you want to know what it looks like to to care for your wives, to hold fast to your wives, Paul's already told us what it looks like. Do what you do for yourself, only do it for your wife. Each and every one of us are very good at showing love and attention and care. It's just we generally show it to ourselves. We are very tuned in to our own desires, our own dreams, our own wants, our own fears, whatever it might be, and we nourish and we cherish those things. And Christ tells us to follow his example and instead nourish and cherish our wives, to be more sensitive to to their needs, their desires, than we are even to our own, to care for them as we care for ourselves. That's one way that we hold fast to our wives. And that can look like a lot of different things. Um, That can mean knowing what your wife needs and appreciates, whether that's um, words of, of affirmation, whether that's acts of service, whatever it might be. Maybe she hates loading the dishwasher and you want to load the dishwasher for her. Maybe she has a very particular way of loading the dishwasher and you want to do something else. You know, know your wife, okay? It's going to look different. But find out what those things are in ways that you can serve and love your wife and hold fast to her. And I think we see even what this means in the language of Genesis, that a man is leaving something. He's leaving his father. He's leaving his mother. He's holding fast to his wife. What does it mean he doesn't have a father and mother? It doesn't mean that he doesn't care for them and have responsibilities to them, but there's a priority here. Is your marriage the most important earthly relationship you have? Or are family and friends and work and hobbies and other things of greater importance and greater priority? Paul says if that's the case, you're falling short here of what marriage can be and what it must be. Be a one-woman man by giving yourself wholeheartedly in what you think and what you say and what you do to your wife. I think another aspect of this that's that's very important, and I want to just draw attention to it because um, it is a big problem in the church, and that is to hold fast to your wife means that you must be a one-woman man. That's what Paul says elders and deacons are to be, husbands of one wife, a one-woman man. Man, And that's not just an ideal for Christian leaders. It's a command for all Christian men. And we think about that often in terms of adultery, right? Don't go have an affair. Don't cheat on your wife. That's true. But how many of us maybe have never gone out and physically committed adultery, but mentally we have regularly? 
Christ takes that same command, doesn't he? And he says, anyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery with her. And I mention this, though it's uncomfortable, because statistically speaking, there are going to be many men in this room who wrestle with this in different ways. Perhaps especially young men, if you came of age uh, as the Internet was becoming popular, you've probably wrestled with this in very powerful ways. Maybe it's the most um, powerful sin you've had to grapple with. And maybe it's something you still grapple with as a married man. Or if you're single, maybe this is something that, that you're beginning to grapple with, and maybe you think, well, if I can just get married, that'll take care of it. It doesn't. This is a, a, an important issue that we need to be fighting on. Right? John Owen told us, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And I want to encourage all of us, old men, young men, married, single, that this is a battle that, that can be fought. When you're trapped in it, it feels intractable, like there's nothing you can do. But by God's grace, you can have victory and strength in this area. You can grow in faithfulness and obedience, but it will take the church. And the, the, the most powerful thing that Satan will do to try to keep you from growing in this area is to keep you alone. So if this is something you struggle with, then chances are all of us do in some way. Seek out a brother that you can talk to. Um, go to an elder, go to a pastor, find an older Christian man, and, and begin to work on this. This is a battle that can be fought, and brothers, it's a battle that must be fought. What would we think of a man who had committed adultery many times and yet came to church every Sunday and sat with his wife and his family like everything was fine? We'd be horrified. And yet, how often does that happen? in our hearts and in our lives. Not because we're out publicly committing adultery, but privately in our hearts. Maybe we are. To hold fast to your wife means to let go of all of these other things and to be a one-woman man. But even more than that, and I think at, at the most basic level, the way that we obey this command as husbands is by putting Christ at the center of our marriages. Look at verse 32. Paul draws our attention to this as he brings this whole section to a close. Husbands and wives, he's been talking to both. Now he brings it to the point and says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now when Paul uses this word mystery, um, he's using it differently than we, how we often use it. He actually explains what he means by mystery earlier on in Ephesians. And for us, a mystery is something that's hidden, it's something that's um, unclear, but for Paul, a mystery is something that was hidden and is now revealed. This is kind of a silly illustration, but hopefully it will make the point. Uh, we think of mystery as that point in the Scooby-Doo episode where the monster is running around and they're trying to figure out what's going on and who the monster is, right? It's a mystery. Paul thinks of a mystery as that point in the Scooby-Doo episode where they grab the mask and pull it off and say, ah, it's Mr. Johnson. It's a mystery. We didn't know what it was. Now it's revealed. Sorry to the both Mr. Johnsons. I didn't think about that. <laughs> um, it's a mystery, but it's now revealed. And Paul says that's kind of how, it, this is one of those mysteries in the Bible. You go back to Genesis, you can see hints, you can see clues of what marriage is for and what marriage is to be, but you don't really understand marriage until you see Christ. 
You don't really understand marriage until you see Christ loving the church, giving himself for her. He says, this is a mystery, it's profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. This just makes the point we've already said, that marriage is not about you, husbands. It's not about you, wives. It's about Christ. And so if we are to lead in love, if we are to nourish and cherish our wives, we do that by putting Christ at the center of our marriage and by leading our wives to Christ. Let me just mention two ways we can do that as we come to a close. First, lead your wife to Christ by your example. Um, We've all probably been in work situations or maybe sport teams or something where you have multiple leaders, right? And there's different kinds of leaders. Some leaders, you have a boss that comes and says, this is what I want you to do, and then he's gone. You never see them again. Uh, That's one way to lead. But you've probably also seen leaders who get down in the trenches with you and walk with you in doing whatever it is you need to do. They lead by example. They don't just tell you something and then fail to do it themselves. They're a living, walking example of what they are calling you to. Now, which leader did you most respond to? Probably it's the one that led by example. That's true spiritually as much as it is in business or sports or anything else. We're called to lead our wives by example. What that means, husbands, is that if you want your wife to be holy, maybe the first step there is for you to pursue holiness in your own walk. And this raises the stakes in everything in our lives. Husbands, if we are not giving any time to reading the Word of God, if we're not giving any time to prayer, to meditation, if we're not giving time to growing in holiness, to putting to death the deeds of the body and seeking to cultivate the fruits of the Spirit, that's not just a matter of our spiritual barometer going up or down. That's affecting the health of our family. We get this with finances, don't we? I know that if I'm going out and taking our income and I'm gambling or I'm buying cars or a few too many books, uh, but that's going to affect the financial health of my whole family, right? It's all linked together. And yet somehow we get this idea that my faith is my faith. That's not true. Your spiritual health is going to have a direct effect on the health of your family and of your wife in particular. So husbands, lead by example. Pursue Christ. Cultivate holiness. Give yourself to the Word of God. Put in place patterns of of personal piety that will carry you through. And this is both, again, as we said, the, 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 um, the fuel for our love, right? As we draw closer to Christ, we are equipped to respond to His love. And it's also what will motivate and and give uh, feet to that love that we show to our wives. So lead husbands by example. Grow in your faith. Come to to church and listen to the sermons. Discuss those sermons with others. Um, Come to, to small groups and Bible studies. Set aside time privately to be in the Word. Give yourself to the means of grace. Come to the Lord's table. Uh, next Sunday, be strengthened in your faith so that you can be an example to lead your wife to Christ. Secondly, I think we, we lead our wives to Christ by our instruction as well. And I think it's important to bring these two things together. You, you don't want to be the know-it-all who's telling your wife what she should think or how she should be, and yet you yourself are living differently. You need, you need your life to be a transcript of your sermon in that sense. That's something that we're told very often in the seminary. Let your life be a transcript of your sermon. That's true for husbands as well. But we are called and given the privilege of instructing our wives. Christ pursues 
sanctity and holiness for the church. And he does it by washing her with the water of the word. Husbands, do you do that with your wife? Do you read the Bible with your wife? Do you pray through scripture with your wife? Do you make it easy for her to spend time in the word? Especially if you have kids and especially young kids, wives know how hard it is to find time in the word. Husbands, are we helping our wives in this? Maybe you take a half hour when you get home from work and you say, I've got the kids. You go hide in the closet and try to read and try to pray and have some time alone with Christ. Make it possible. Make it easy. Make it attractive for your wife to come to Christ. Family worship is a great setting for this as well. Read the Bible together uh, as a family. Pray together as a family. Sing these psalms and hymns together as a family. Maybe take time to you know, listen to the audio files and sing through some, some of these things. It prepares you for Sunday, and it also gives you opportunity to worship even together. And, and so often we, we let go of this very easily. I, I confess my own sins here. It's, I've often fallen short in leading my wife, leading my family in family worship. I think especially of our first year or two of marriage, where so often Tree and I were both working and we'd come home and the evening seems very short. You have dinner, you clean up, and there's not a whole lot of time and you're just tired. And so I lead my wife down to the couch so we can sit and watch Netflix for an hour or two and then go to bed. What a missed opportunity. Um, that's not loving your wife. That's not holding fast to your wife. It's not putting Christ at the center of your marriage. That's making happiness of a very short and temporary kind the heart of your marriage rather than holiness, which brings real happiness and real health. So husbands, let's lead our wives by our example and by our instruction. These are just general words. There's much more we could add to this. And I encourage you, husbands, let's talk about this as men. Even after the service, what are ways that we can love our wives better? Go to older Christians and say, what have you done that's worked well? What have you done that's worked poorly? Let's be students of our wives. Let's be students of Christ. And let's pray that Kirk of the Plains would be a place where people would come in and see Christ in our marriages. That they would look at the way that husbands treat their wives in love and the way that wives submit and respect to their husbands and say, wow, that looks like Christ and the church. That looks like the gospel that is preached. May it be so for us. Let me invite you uh, now to take a moment. This is our habit here at Kirk of the Plains, just to take a minute or two to meditate in silence on the word of Christ to you and to think of how it can apply to you even this week. Let's take a moment of silence together.